Hello there and welcome to Byzantium and the Crusades. My name is Nick Holmes and this is a podcast series that looks at the Crusades from the Byzantine angle. Now we've heard about the Battle of Mansikert and how the Dukai seized the throne from Romanus Diogenes, who was really the first Byzantine emperor for decades to try to reverse Byzantium's decline. Now we're going to hear about the reign of Michael VII's Dukas, which took Byzantium to a new low. This episode is called The Loss of Anatolia. As before, I'll read extracts from my book called The Byzantine World War, which was published last year in 2019 and is available at Amazon and most retailers. So let's go. Hope you enjoy it. After the death of Romanus Diogenes, Byzantium's collapse was rapid. The reign of Michael VII, Ducas, must count as the most disastrous in the whole history of Byzantium. Complacency, arrogance and incompetence rapidly reduced the empire to a state of chaos from which it never truly recovered. On the 4th of August 1072, Romanus died from his brutal blinding. In Constantinople, Caesar John celebrated. His nephew Michael VII was emperor. Everything seemed to have gone his way, but the truth was that Byzantium could not have found an emperor less suitable to face the enveloping crisis of the 1070s. In most ways, Michael VII was the exact opposite of Romanus, still in his early 20s and with no military experience whatsoever. He'd lived a secluded life in the palace, tutored by sycophants like Michael Cellus, who taught him how to write iambic verses but little else. The Byzantine chronicler Skylitzes described him thus... Quote, While he, Michael VII, spent his time in the useless pursuit of iambic and anapistic verse, and they were poor efforts indeed, he brought his empire to ruin. End quote. Some historians even think Michael VII's Ducas may have been mentally retarded. He was certainly incapable of ruling and passed all matters of government to a eunuch courtier called Nikephoritzes, who so effectively put him under his spell that even Caesar John Ducas decided to withdraw to his estates in Bithynia. Meanwhile, the empire's enemies were gathering on all sides. In the west, a serious revolt against imperial rule by the Bulgarians in 1072 was only just crushed by the western army which had survived the Battle of Mansikert. Raids by the Pechenegs and border disputes with the rapidly growing Kingdom of Hungary also started to intensify. But the main threat in the west lay across the Adriatic since southern Italy had been lost to the Normans in 1071 when the last Byzantine stronghold of Bari fell. Now, Robert Guiscar, one of the most formidable soldiers in Europe, was pondering when best to strike at Byzantium. He was only kept at bay for the time being by the crafty diplomacy of the eunuch Nikephoritzes, who devised a marriage betrothal between Guiscar's daughter and Michael VII's young son, Constantine. But if the situation in the West was bad, in the East it was infinitely worse. There was no central military government left after Romanus's death. Garrisons still existed, scattered among the cities and towns like Antioch and Edessa, but the Cappadocian heartland was wide open to Turkish attack. At first, this wasn't disastrous since Turkmen plundering raids had abated in the months after Mansikert, as Alp Arslan had left strict instructions to honour the peace with Romanus. 
However, when Alparslan heard of Romanus's brutal blinding, he was enraged and ordered the Turkmen to resume raiding. Quote, Alp Arslan, upon hearing of Romanus's blinding, directed his troops to take the land of the Greeks and to shed the blood of the Christians. End quotes. The Turkmen were only too pleased to comply and poured through what was left of the Byzantine defences. The situation didn't change with Alp Arslan's untimely death. Campaigning in the east of the vast Seljuk Empire, he was killed by a rebellious provincial governor in Turkestan. The man was taken before the Sultan, but had managed to conceal a dagger and rushed forward to stab him. The Arab chroniclers say that Alp Arslan, who took great pride in his reputation as an archer, motioned to his guards not to interfere. He drew his bow, but his foot slipped and the arrow missed allowing the man to reach him and stab him in the chest. Alparslan died from this wound four days later in October 1072. The deaths of both Romanus and Alparslan within three months of each other and barely more than a year after the Battle of Mansikand meant the complete breakdown of any pretense of peace between the Byzantines and the Seljuks. However, even though the Turkmen drove their flocks into the heartland of Byzantine Anatolia, there was no invasion initiated by Alparslan's successor, his son Malik Shah. Indeed, just the opposite, Malik Shah paid little attention to Byzantine Anatolia, focusing instead on fighting the Seljuks' two main enemies, the Karakhanids to the east and the Fatimids to the west. This brought the Byzantines something of a breathing space, as the Seljuk Turkmen fought in Syria and the Levant against the Fatimids rather than in Anatolia. Indeed, two Seljuk warlords, Artuk and Atsis, made good progress against the Fatimids. They captured the Fatimid strongholds in Syria one by one, first Aleppo, then Jerusalem, the brutal sacking of which attracted attention in Europe with Pope Gregory II promising to take up arms against the Turks in 1074, and finally Damascus in 1075, before advancing into Egypt, where Atsis was crushingly defeated by the Fatimids in 1077 outside Cairo. The Seljuks never advanced into Egypt again. With the Seljuks fighting the Fatimids, many of the main towns and cities of Byzantine Anatolia were able to hold out against the Turkmen, although the countryside was overrun by the Turkmen, forcing growing numbers of rural refugees to flee to Constantinople. This brought hunger, overcrowding and disease to the capital, which even the incompetent government of Michael VII could not ignore. Belatedly, Michael VII's chief minister, Nikephoritzis, yielded to public pressure to muster an army to confront the Turks. The problem was that with the corpses of Romanus's regiment still lying on the plains of Mansikert, there was no effective army to face the Turks. In 1073, Nikephoritzis of appointed Isaac Komnenus to lead an army to Iconium in Cappadocia to confront the Turkmen. This army was of very dubious quality, consisting mainly of feudal levies of the Byzantine magnates, called the Heterii, and a mixture of mercenaries, including the Varangians and several hundred Norman knights, led by Roussel de Bayeul. Little did the Byzantines realise it, but this Norman, Roussel, 
was about to become as dangerous to them as the Turks were. He was the same Norman commander who had deserted Romanus at the Battle of Manzikert and rose to prominence again when his fellow Norman, Robert Crispin, who had previously engineered Romanus's defeat, was poisoned by jealous rivals in 1072. He would soon show that his treacherous behaviour at Manzikert was capable of being repeated. After advancing to Iconium, Roussel deserted Isaac Comnenus and took his Normans to set up what was in effect his own principality in the old Armeniac theme, that is the northeastern rim of Anatolia, with his base at Amasia. Roussel had almost certainly been planning this. He was copying the tactics of the Normans in southern Italy, who had turned from being mercenaries to lords of their own fiefdoms. Unwisely, Isaac Comnenus ignored Roussel's desertion and marched to Caesarea where he encountered a Turkish warband. His Byzantine feudal soldiers were easily routed by the Turks and Isaac himself was taken prisoner. While the Dukai ransomed Isaac from Turkish captivity, Roussel took delight in extending his own fiefdom in Anatolia. Ironically, the Dukai felt more threatened by this Norman insurrection than by the Turkish invasion. It reminded them of what the Normans had done in southern Italy with devastating consequences for Byzantine authority. And this time, it was even closer to home. So, in 1074 another Byzantine army marched east. Led by no less than Caesar John Ducas himself, with his son Andronicus Ducas, who was the traitor of Mansicurd, the army advanced into central Anatolia. It was indeed to be the last Byzantine army to venture this far east in the whole of the 11th century. It marched past Armorium to cross the Sangarius River at the great bridge of Zompos, just as Romanus had done on his way to Manticurt in 1071. But this army was a shadow of the great host that Romanus had led to Manticurt, and Roussel was only too keen to meet it in battle. He and his band of Norman knights were waiting for the Byzantines on the other side of the bridge. The Battle of Zompos Bridge drove the final nail into the coffin of Byzantine rule in Anatolia. With 50% of the Byzantine army consisting of mercenaries, it was critically flawed, as became immediately apparent when the entire right wing of Frankish cavalry defected to Roussel in the first stage of the battle. Roussel encircled Caesar John Ducas and his Varangians in the centre. In a bizarre repeat of the pattern of events at Mansikert, it was indeed the rearguard commanded by Nicephorus Botaniates that ensured a complete Byzantine rout by retreating and abandoning the field. Botaniates had little love for the Dukai, and his sense of self-preservation came into play when he saw that Caesar John's defeat was inevitable. As a result, the traitors of Mansikert suffered the same fate that they themselves had inflicted on Romanus at Mansikert. Caesar John was surrounded by Roussel's Franks, Andronicus, led the left wing of regular Byzantine troops in a desperate charge to save his father, but Roussel's Franks were more than a match for the Byzantines. Andronicus was unhorsed and badly wounded. Caesar John led a sally out to save his son, as the Franks were apparently trying to take his helmet off to cut off his head. Andronicus just escaped death, but they were both taken prisoner. 
Crippled by his wounds, Andronicus Ducas would die three years later. Indeed, his wounds were so bad that he was immediately released by Roussel, who, however, kept Caesar John prisoner. Now, Roussel realised that he was in a strong enough position to seize the Byzantine Empire for himself. All the Franks in the Byzantine pay flocked to join him, leading a substantial force of maybe some 3,000 Norman and Frankish knights, with no doubt several thousand infantry and non-combatants in support. Roussel advanced on Constantinople itself and set up camp at Chrysopolis, just across the Bosphorus from the capital. He then played his trump card. He demanded that Michael VII abdicate in favour of Caesar John Ducas, who was to be his puppet emperor. The farce of Ducas' rule had come full circle to its humiliating conclusion. The empire was now being bartered for by a Norman mercenary, but Michael VII's government, run by the eunuch Nikephoritzes, still had one more card up their sleeves. Messengers were dispatched to the most powerful of the Turkmen chieftains, Artuk, begging him to attack Roussel with the promise of gold. As a result, a Turkmen army rode west to attack the Normans. One band of mercenaries had been recruited to fight another. Roussel was not intimidated by the idea of a fight with the Turkmen. Indeed, he seemed to relish it. He immediately led his forces out from Chrysopolis to meet the Turks in battle. At a place called Metaboli, he met the Turkish advance guard. The Norman cavalry charge was the 11th century equivalent of the 20th century German blitzkrieg, and the numerically smaller Norman force of some 3,000 knights sent the much larger Turkish force, Ataliati says perhaps it was 6,000, reeling. But Roussel had underestimated the size of Artuk's warband. As the Normans continued to charge forward, they found themselves facing the main body of Turks. According to Ataliates, this consisted of 100,000 Turkish cavalry. Certainly a gross exaggeration, although Ataliates is not normally given to such statements. He describes the heroic bravery of the Normans in the face of insurmountable odds. Quote, Roussel spurred his Franks into an unbridled charge, whereupon he saw the mass of Turks boundless in their multitude and heaving like the waves of a vast sea. End of quote. After fierce fighting, the Normans were defeated. Both Roussel and Caesar John were captured. Michael VII offered Artuk gold to ransom both of them. Caesar John was handed back over to him. This time, even the most Machiavellian of Byzantium's politicians could not escape disgrace. He agreed to step down from politics and become a monk. His head was shaved, but unlike Romanus Diogenes, he escaped blinding. And indeed, he would later return to politics, as we shall see, for one last roll of the dice. As for the Norman Roussel, he survived thanks to the efforts of his wife, who acted quickly and decisively to save him. According to the Byzantines, Norman wives were as feisty as their husbands, and she took command of the survivors of the Norman army, who had fled to the fortress of Metaboli. There she organised a successful defence against the Turks and managed to persuade the Turks to return her husband for a considerable amount of captured Byzantine gold. 
Roussel's revolt marks the beginning of a new era in Byzantine military history. Thereafter, there was no longer any pretense that a regular Byzantine army existed capable of, of defending Anatolia. The use of Turk against Norman was an admission of complete military failure. The imperial army had ceased to exist, except for part of it in the form of the Western army that had survived Mansikert and a few garrisons still left in Antioch, Edessa and Trebizond on the Black Sea coast of Anatolia. But Cappadocia and the rest of modern-day Turkey was now firmly in Turkish hands. Without an army to oppose them, the Turkmen spread across the length and breadth of Anatolia. They took control of most of the countryside of modern-day Turkey in the period up to 1078. But they couldn't take all of the towns and cities, or at least not immediately. Many of these continued to hold out so that a bizarre situation developed, with Turks appearing on the eastern banks of the Bosphorus, just a few miles from Constantinople itself, while a thousand miles to the east, big cities like Antioch and Edessa in northern Syria continued to hold out. The next phase of Byzantine collapse resulted from a series of rebellions against the incompetent government of Michael VII, Ducas. These began in 1077 with rebellions in both east and west. In the west, the western army under Nicephorus Briennius revolted in a bid to seize the throne. Simultaneously, in the east, the most powerful of the surviving Asian magnates, Nicephorus Britanniates, also rebelled. The race was on to see who could oust Michael VII. The, first. the Byzantines not only destroyed their scarce resources fighting each other, but what was worse was their mortgaging of Anatolia to the Turks in return for their support. For example, Botaniates gave the Turkish Sultan Suleiman control of a host of Anatolian towns in return for Turkish mercenaries. These were Pilai, Prenatus, Nicomedia, Rufinii, Sisychus, Chalcedon and Chrysopolis all appear to have been handed into Turkish hands in return for Turkish support. Indeed, using his Turkish forces, he ousted Michael VII, who agreed to abdicate and entered a monastery in March 1078. The spate of rebellions between 1077 and 1081 is dizzying. Botaniates' rule as emperor only lasted three years until he himself was confronted by new rebellions. The first was by the Western army, still led by Nicephorus Briennius, who had commanded it at Mansikert. This rebellion was defeated at the Battle of Calavriae when a capable young general called Alexius Comnenus, commanding mainly Turkish mercenary troops, defeated the superior regular Byzantine forces of the Western Army through a mixture of luck and cunning. The tragedy was that the Byzantines succeeded in destroying the last remnant of their regular army. The line of descent from the legions of ancient Rome had finally come to an end. The focus of attention now turned to this young general, Alexius Comnenus. A clever tactician and a brave soldier, he defeated another rebellion, this time by Nicephorus Basilakis, uh, Romanus Diogenes's erstwhile general who had been captured at Mansikert. But in 1081, the servant turned on his master. The young Alexius Comnenus marched on Constantinople. 
It was then that Caesar John played his last hand, seizing the opportunity to get his own back on Botaniates, who had deposed Michael VII. Caesar John bribed the German mercenaries guarding a section of the walls of Constantinople to let Alexius Comnenus's motley army of Western mercenaries into the great city, which they proceeded to loot until Alexius was able to restore order. This was payment for Alexius's marriage to Irene Ducas in 1078, the daughter of Andronicus Ducas. With Caesar John's sons Andronicus and Constantine both dead, this union between the Ducas family and the Comneni offered the last hope of continuing the House of Ducas. On the 4th of April 1081, Alexius Comnenus was crowned emperor. At long last, Byzantium had an emperor who merited his position. He was a brave young general, resourceful, battle-hardened and determined. But he was the heir to a dying empire. And that ends this episode. Hope you enjoyed it. If you did, I'd be so grateful if you left a review since it really helps me to promote this podcast. Sorry to ask, but you'd be doing me a huge favor. Thank you so much. In the next episode, we'll pause to reflect on the reasons why Byzantium went from superpower to the brink of collapse in 10 years.